Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And this time, we're talking about Ukrainian culture, the important role it plays in war, and why it has been the target of Russian dictators for decades. I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent culture reporter Kate Surkan, who has recently covered and also worked in the Ukrainian cultural field for years. Kate is joining us from Chernivtsi. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nastya. So... We decided to devote this episode to the topic of culture, unfortunately, because of some terrible news. One of the 13 casualties of Russia's strike in Kramatorsk on June 27th was Victoria Amelina. She's a famous award-winning Ukrainian writer who was also the founder of a literature festival in New York, which is a small town in Donetsk Oblast here in Ukraine. So, Kate, you knew Victoria personally, uh, so I want to begin by briefly talking about her life and also why her death is unfortunately not unique um, in the history of Ukrainian culture. Yeah, uh, so it's been quite a difficult week for Ukrainian cultural sphere because Victoria was such an immense talent uh, and to think that we will have no more work of hers to look forward to that her life was cut so short it's it's absolutely devastating but in her short life she was able to write two really well-received popular novels uh one was called dom's dream kingdom it was about a, a soviet colonel's family that lived in lviv in the 1990s in the department of stanislaw lem uh the polish jewish writer who was living in uh, lviv uh, at that time and so it deals a lot with like uh, generational trauma all of these issues that's very popular in ukrainian literature to deal mm-hmm. with the the layers of history right. especially in uh like in uh, writers from lviv from chernivtsi all these areas and she had another her first novel was uh the fall syndrome and it's about like an ordinary ukrainian guy who is uh, understanding the importance of maidan revolution but mm. what makes this novel unique is that she doesn't talk only about maidan she talks about other revolutions around the world like uh, during the arab spring for example mm. uh so uh, in addition to this victoria was also a children's book author she was a poet she was uh, nominated for a number of national and international literary awards but um because of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, like many people, her life completely changed. So she wanted to do more for the war effort than just uh, help volunteers. And she decided to train to become a war crimes researcher. So she joined the organization Truth Hounds. And she was going to uh, very dangerous areas of liberated uh, territories in, in Ukraine, in the south, in the east. And she was interviewing survivors of the Russian occupation. Uh, and so there's, you know, famously the photos of her with the helmets and the bullets proof hmm. best. And, yeah. You know, I remember her as this small, petite, uh, blonde woman, so, but she was so hmm. incredibly brave. And uh, she also, while she was making a trip to Kharkiv Oblast, she found the um, the diary of Volodymyr Vakulenko, who was a famous children's book author, who was uh, abducted by the Russian occupation forces uh, in March last year. And before hmm. he was, uh, basically they had come more than once to his home and he understood what was going to happen. So he buried his diary in the yard, uh, in a cherry tree under in the yard of his house. And he told his father where it was. Mm-hmm. So Vic- Victoria and her father went to, to find the diary and it took them a while, but it was Victoria who found it. And uh, now that 
Yeah, the diary now is uh, kept in the Kharkiv Literature Museum for posterity, but uh, Vivat Publishing House put out uh, like a print copy that also includes some of Volodymyr's poems. And uh, Victoria wrote the foreword to that. And as she said, as long as people are reading the words of uh, of an author, that he's still alive. So um, it's, it's quite horrible that uh, Volodymyr Vakulenko was one of the... Um, uh, his body was found in this mass grave in Izum. Uh, and then Victoria, who was uh, documenting war crimes, became the victim of a war crime herself. But um, mm-hmm. unfortunately, this is uh, this has happened to Ukrainian artists before in history, because Russia, whether it's the uh, Russian Federation, the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire, has a history of targeting Ukrainian artists. And tell us a bit more about that history, um, about, about that pattern. Yeah. Uh, so even in the Russian Empire, uh, Taras Shevchenko, Ukraine's most famous poet uh, from the 19th century, he he lived a part of his life in serfdom, so slavery, and some friends saw his artistic talent and they helped buy his freedom. Uh, when he was in Kyiv, he was part of a secret uh, political society, a secret society called mm. the Brotherhood of Saint Cyril and Methodius. Mm-hmm. And it was a very short-lived society, but it was quite radical. And apparently Shevchenko was one of the most radical members. So uh, they were advocating for Ukrainian language revival, for the Russian Empire to become a federation where all people uh, were uh, among equals and it was not like Russia uh, elevated above everyone else. And uh, they wanted serfdom to be abolished, all these things. And uh, eventually the secret society was disbanded and Shevchenko was arrested. And uh, basically the Tsar sent Shevchenko into exile uh, all the way to uh, basically almost to Kazakhstan, to some colony, and said that under no condition is this man allowed to write, to paint, to do anything. Ukraine's most important writer and author in the history of our country, he was also... Um, first a slave and then um, a target of the Russian Empire. And he was also punished. And so I, I just want to make it clear for the audience that this isn't, you know, a, a part of our history. This is really kind of the whole thing. This is really like the embodiment of our myths and our national stories. It, it's it's this tension between the Russian Empire and us. It's embodied in all of the literature and all of the arts one way or the other, right? Absolutely. And that's why it's so, I imagine, surreal. Uh, there was this story in, in spring where so Ukrainian soldiers found um, a rare edition of Taras Shevchenko's Kobzar, uh, his most famous work. They found it in Bakhmut in a destroyed uh, building. And they they took the book and they passed it along for preservation. But uh, the things that Taras Shevchenko was advocating for, fighting for in his life, in his work, are what Ukrainians are still fighting for. Really nothing uh, changed, yeah. Yeah, it's it's horrible. But um, yeah, that, that uh, persecution, that targeting of Ukrainians continued into Soviet Union. So in the Soviet times, there were periods where you, like uh, not just Ukrainian, but other languages and cultures were kind of allowed to thrive. And and then when Soviet authorities got a little too worried that uh, they might, you know, start to have some uh, independence, they would uh, push these Russification policies. And unfortunately, this is what happened uh, during Stalin's time in the 1930s. So there was um, later scholars called it the executed renaissance, where in over an estimated 200 
200 Ukrainian artists were either put into exile, killed, uh, arrested, and there was no... Uh, I mean, they were not some grand revolutionaries, most of them. They were just, you know, writing in Ukrainian language, promoting their culture. And there it was, uh, many of them sent to Sandarmoh in Russia. It's a forest that is essentially a mass burial ground where not only Ukrainians, but uh, Russians, Belarusians, Finns, Poles, Germans were shot dead. Uh, and many uh, of Ukraine's greatest minds were were killed and uh, in the killing fields of Sandarmo. Yeah, and uh, it's it's quite uh, surreal to understand that this persecution continued up until the end of the Soviet Union. Um, Vasil Stus, very famous Ukrainian poet, died in, during a hunger strike in a Russian penal colony in 1985. This is the same year that uh, the West was celebrating uh, Khorbashov, talking about Samizdat and how the Soviet Union was becoming more open. But uh, in, in those times, in places like Soviet-era Ukraine, uh, just owning books that were considered dissident were a crime. Uh, Stus was promoting Ukrainian language, Ukrainian national revival, and that was a crime. There is obviously a pattern of repression when it comes to Ukrainian artists and cultural figures um, all throughout history. But the question is, why has culture always been so important for dictators specifically, like the rulers of Russia? What is it about culture and writers and novelists that makes them so dangerous that you have to, you know, pack them onto trains and send them to Siberia or kill them or, you know, repress them like that? Uh, so I would say that culture is not necessarily important. What's important is anti this anti-culture. Uh, in, in Russia, you see today that uh, there is a lot of, uh, the, over the years leading up to the invasion, there was a lot of literature, I use that term very lightly, uh, where they were basically conditioning uh, the Russian public to believe that Ukraine needed to be invaded. So there were titles like Bandera genocide and uh, mm. Ukrainian blood and mm -hmm. the tragedy of Ukraine. And mm -hmm. it's it's not written by literary figures. This is just pure trash. Literature, real literature, promotes reflection. It promotes free thinking. And the greatest enemy of any dictator is free thinking. So that's why, uh, you know, Tar uh, Taras Shevchenko was, uh, the Tsar said, under no condition is he allowed to paint or write because he understood the power of those words. Culture also fosters and creates your national identity and your, your identity as a human being within a state, right? We, uh, we connect with our works of art, with the Ukrainian paintings, with Ukrainian poems. And when, when we think about what makes you Ukrainian or what makes you the specific group of people that's very distinct from Russians, that this is when culture comes to mind. And I think that's also what made it so dangerous that these, these cultural works, these forbidden Samvidov pieces that people were prosecuted for, they, fostered that identity when the Russians were desperately trying to shut it down, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess that leads us to a very controversial topic, which of course has been on a lot of cultural figures' mind uh, in recent weeks, especially. And that's the question of art and culture being outside of politics, quote unquote, as some people want it to be and believe it to be. I know you don't believe that. And actually, most people in Ukraine don't believe it. So can you explain your thinking here? Why 
why art and culture cannot and also should not be outside of politics? Uh, well, as we've already established, I mean, Ukrainian literature, or not just Ukrainian literature, but especially in this context, has played a huge role in the formation of national identity. Since the start of the Russian invasion, a lot of Ukrainian writers have refused to appear at festivals or other events alongside Russian uh, writers. Now, uh, a lot of them are anti-Putin. They are horrified by the war, it has to be said, and that's, yeah. that's a good thing. But, uh, you know... As I've said, and many others have said, being an enemy of Putin does not necessarily make you a friend of Ukraine. Yes. Uh, so True. we have had a lot of... Uh, there's the start of this discourse happening in English. Uh, quite famously, Ilif Batumin, who is a famous Russian scholar, did an article in The New Yorker where she was talking about how the war in Ukraine has caused her to... Or led her to reassess how she reads Russian literature and how mm. she looks at the uh how, how we should look at the imperial undertones of some of this literature so we don't need to burn it we just need to uh look be aware at yeah. yeah to be aware of it just like we are aware of this uh colonial influences in american uh or british or mm -hmm. french literature mm -hmm. and uh, it, it was it was a good article, but you know the Russian writer Boris Akunin. Uh, he had a bit of a meltdown on Facebook over it, and he said, "What am I an emperor now?" And uh, it's it's just it's quite strange to me, like how they feel threatened. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, Mikhail Shishkin, another famous Russian writer, even got to pen an article in the Atlantic uh, about defending Pushkin, and he was so horrified, like, why my Ukrainian friends are advocating for the destruction of Pushkin statues in Ukraine? Pushkin didn't do anything to you guys. But why did we have a Pushkin statue in Ushkarod? In the uh, first place, yeah. Yes. Why was, uh, why do people know more about Pushkin, uh, than about, uh, famous Ukrainian writers like Lesa Ukrainka or Ivan Franko or the writers of the executed Renaissance? Mm -hmm. That actually leads perfectly into my next point about how Russia is actually actively has used and is using to this day culture to advance its aggressive foreign policy, in, including in its war against Ukraine. Because th that's also why art and culture cannot be outside of politics, just because if you look at it, if you accept reality, it's just not because culture is constantly used by governments and states, especially oppressive states around the world, to advance its foreign policy. So can you dig into that a little bit? Uh, yeah, but, uh, when the Russian military comes, uh, into the occupied territories of Ukraine, uh, the first thing they do is try to attack culture. So, uh, I have statistics from the Ministry of Culture every month. They are putting out, uh, basically, uh, statistics about the cultural objects that were either, uh, severely damaged or outright destroyed by the war. So in June, the latest number is 1,582 cultural objects have either been damaged or destroyed. This does not include statues. Uh, and the number that is the most shocking for me is 598 libraries. Uh, and this is mostly in uh, South and Eastern Ukraine. So these are the areas that Russians claim are Russian and that they are trying to protect. They are basically destroying everything. And uh, I, I saw in January, the number for libraries was 453. So the year is halfway over and over 100 libraries have been destroyed or damaged beyond repair. Why? 
it's very obvious here. Ukrainian uh, armed forces uh, and also cultural uh, activists basically relay stories from the occupied territories, from people, from librarians, from teachers, that the Russian forces uh, go into libraries and they destroy all the Ukrainian language books. They conduct book burnings, uh, especially books about Ukrainian history, about mm. uh, literature, and they target uh, Ukrainian teachers, Ukrainian literature teachers as well, anyone with pro-Ukrainian views. So their goal is to just try and erase all signs of Ukrainian history and culture because they think in their schizophrenic brains that Ukraine is Russia. And uh, they put up, you know, these billboards about Pushkin, uh, about uh, in Mariupol, in this uh, drama theater, it was really quite uh, perverse that uh, this theater that was bombed where hundreds of people, mostly women and children, were seeking shelter when the war, uh, when the invasion first started. They put over it some like uh, construction banner where it was pictures of Russian writers uh, and also Nikola uh, Gogol, mm -hmm. who is Ukrainian writer. If you read uh, his work, it's like the the soul of his work is Ukrainian. Dostoevsky could not have written Dead Souls or Dinos. Uh, mm -hmm. But they he is one of those writers that they say, oh, it's it's our Russian writer. No, he is from Ukraine. He's a Ukrainian writer. But but they are trying to um, to force like Pushkin statues that were up uh, decades ago to put these billboards, you know, of, of mm -hmm. Pushkin, of, of Tostoy, and uh, to say like we have come to liberate you and uh, to return you to to show you that you are not really uh, Ukrainians. And this is what they tell to children that they are taking to the occupied territories as well. They say that you were lied to by your parents, by your teachers, by everyone, and we are going to tell you the truth. In the history of Russia, it has always, they have said like we are among equals, but Russian culture, Russian language has always been elevated above everything else. Uh, if you talk to people in any town or city in Ukraine, uh, and not just Ukraine, uh, but I use Ukraine because I live here, uh, they say, and they grew up in Soviet Union, they will tell you that they knew Ukrainian, but to, to get anywhere in life, you had to speak Russian. Yeah. Uh, if, if you spoke Ukrainian, you were considered from the village or simple. And so it became uh, like a kind of internal, uh, internalized colonization that you mm -hmm. wanted to belong, you wanted to uh, do well in life. So you just forgot your culture, your history, your language, and you started to speak Russian and embrace this Russian culture. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in a lot of Russian culture, Pushkin, for example, Pushkin talks about the, the great, uh, like those who offend the great Russian empire. Uh, he has a text against Mazepa, Ivan Mazepa. Uh, famously be betrayed in the words of the Russians, mm -hmm. um, the Tsar, and uh, he was Ukrainian uh, uh, hetman, mm -hmm. and uh, you know Brodsky, Joseph Brodsky, the famous Soviet dissident. Uh, so again, uh, ostensibly in the view of the West, a good person against authoritarianism, mm -hmm. but uh, he had a poem basically on the independence of Ukraine where he says at the end that Ukrainians on their deathbeds, uh, wheezing on their deathbeds, will uh, renounce Taras Shevchenko for Alexander Pushkin. So, uh, I mean, there's mm -hmm. many, many examples of this, yeah, yeah. where uh, Russian literature, I mean, Bulgakov as well, famously, yeah. he has this kind of like derogatory nature, uh, uh, portrayal of Ukrainian language in uh, in his work. And he really looked down on Ukrainians, even though he was born in Ukraine. And he uh, he lived in Kyiv. He went to school, he started his medical career in Chernivtsi. But, uh, you know, 
they 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 really looked down on Ukrainians Ukrainian language uh and and even in the the propaganda even leading up to the invasion there is this portrayal that Ukraine is not a real country that Ukraine is not a real language that it's a dialect of Russian which is quite funny when you understand that there's Ukrainian words that Russians cannot pronounce or understand Ukrainians do not want to burn these books they do not want to cancel them they want to finally have the space for their culture uh has the opportunity to grow. Yeah, exactly. Like no one I don't think anybody in Ukraine is advocating for some sort of I don't know, worldwide ban on Pushkin or anything. It's just that it has to be read in context and there has yes. to be, you know, an under, an understanding of of the historical place where this was written and how. And at the same time, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of authors they don't necessarily want to cancel the Russian authors. They just want to give more space to them. They want to give more space to the Ukrainian writers because we haven't been given space for such a long time. So it's not that we, you know, are completely against any Russian authors doing anything with their careers forever. It's that maybe it's time to pay attention somewhere else, right? Is that is that the correct way to see it? Absolutely. And uh, basically, if we allow Ukrainian and Russian writers on the same stage, it creates this false uh, perception of dialogue that should not exist while there are Russian boots on Ukrainian soil. And uh, I mean, there was famously this uh, Pan-America scandal recently where uh, Artem Chupai, Artem Chekh and Irina Tsilik were invited to the Pan World Voices Festival in New York. And uh, they were upfront, like Pan-Ukraine was upfront right away and said that uh, they can come, but we don't want any Russians to be there because this is our stance during wartime. And apparently Pan-Ukraine... Or Pan America said fine, but then like uh, right before the festival was going to start, it was announced that there was uh, this uh, panel with Masha Gessen, the famous Russian-American journalist, Anna Nemzer, another uh, famous Russian journalist, a Russian historian, and a Chinese author whose name escapes me, unfortunately. But uh, there was this whole back and forth, and basically... Uh, it was understood that Pan America was at fault here. They didn't plan. There were too many cooks in the kitchen, as we say in English. Uh, but, uh, the media, the Western media reacted like absolutely atrociously. They were basically saying that, uh, uh, Ukrainians were bullying the Russians and that it's discrimination. And, uh, what, what is the path that this will lead to? And, and also for even greater context. Artem Chekh is a soldier, so he... And Artem Chupai as well. Right. Oh, okay. So here you go. So yes. Two of these Ukrainian authors, uh, or great authors, by the way, they're actively fighting in the war right now. And, you know, I know for a fact that Chekh has been in Bakhmut recently. Yes. So what the government, and if for our audience, if you don't really understand how that might be, that they're, you know, taking part in festivals and also fighting... Thankfully, the government allows for this kind of cultural diplomacy. So sometimes they can leave their positions for a few days for a week and go participate because it's also very important to Ukrainian diplomacy. But yes, yes. I just wanted to make sure that it's it's really absurd, especially because these Ukrainian authors are, you know, risking their lives defending Ukraine. And uh, what's quite interesting is that in this media backlash that followed the scandal, uh, Anna Nemzer, one of these Russian journalists, was on TV uh, Dosh TV Rain, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And she uh, basically, the the host was trying to paint this like as a form uh, of uh, like that she was a victim and like mm-hmm. how horrible mm-hmm. it was. And Anna Nemser said quite uh, thoughtfully, like, uh, of course, it was unpleasant situation, but I am not the main victim here. Ukrainians are the victims. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, I have a very simple stance. If Ukrainians don't want me there, I'm out. And you know, I, I think in this context a lot about the the wars in the 90s in the Balkans, uh, because I've talked to people from Bosnia, for example, and uh, they they face the same issue where the West wants everyone to reconcile. And uh, this is when a lot of uh, war criminals have still not been brought to justice. Uh, how many decades later? So it's it's quite. Uh, it's quite frustrating to realize that we have a long road when it comes to cultural relations between Ukrainians and Russians. Uh, I remember every Russian who is not a Russian writer who is not making this situation about them, who is not complaining about Pushkin. Uh, I will be happy to someday share a table with them mm-hmm. uh, because they understand the situation. But mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of them don't and are using their influence in the media to push this discrimination narrative is quite frustrating and quite discouraging. So Russia is really, really aware of the power of culture and is actively using culture for uh, its full-scale war and, you know, and also before the full-scale invasion. Um, you've also mentioned a little bit on the appropriation of Ukrainian artists uh, who Russia claims to be theirs. And I think probably uh, the most famous case of that is Malevich, uh, who Russia claims to be, you know, their greatest, you know, avant-gardist in the world. But he's actually as Ukrainian as anyone mm-hmm. can be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite strange that... Uh, I, 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 I'm not as well-versed in art, but uh, I'm going back to Gogol, uh, the fact that Gogol uh, wrote sometimes in uh, Russian, uh, it's it's uh, scholars have reflected on this quite a bit. Like, was he Russian? Was he Ukrainian? He was uh, like the the nature of his work. If you read uh, Gogol, or if you read Lyasa Ukrainka, or Ivan Franko, or any of these Ukrainian writers, it's quite a different uh, feeling than uh, because it's different mentality compared to the Russian literature. And uh, when you deal with this question of language. Um, quite interesting. So Gogol, it's like when you live in empire, yeah, you have to code switch. So you wouldn't have necessarily the same success in the Russian empire if you were writing in Ukrainian. So this is a choice that he made. Uh, uh, but I, I think that saying someone writes in a particular language means that they are from that country is quite a poor literary scholarship. There are many Ukrainian writers, uh, contemporary writers, who for most of their careers were writing in Russian. They never considered themselves to be Russian. It was just this uh, language that they grew up with. But uh, we can get into that as well because of the war. They switched and they stopped from writing in Russian. And now they write only in Ukrainian because you see, uh, because they understood that if you use the Russian language, that you create uh, that Russia can try to claim you as one of your own. And if you are not interested in the Russian world, the Russian world is interested in you. You've mentioned some statistics about how uh, about how many libraries have been damaged and about how many uh, cultural sites have been damaged. Can we go a bit more into how has the Ukrainian cultural scene been affected in general uh, during this full scale invasion? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a lot of books uh, that were supposed to be published around the time of the full scale invasion were either delayed or they're just not going to come out. The Ukrainian publishing industry has started to recover, 
Uh, a lot of publishers that I've spoken to said book sales are even up compared to a year ago. A lot of writers have said uh, at, at events that um, the greatest compliment is to hear from someone that when they fled, uh, the first thing they took was their book with them. So bo- books have power. Uh, books have been a great comfort uh, to people during the war. And um, the the unfortunate thing, or not unfortunate, um, the really uh, incredible thing is that uh, a lot of Ukrainian writers have enrolled in, uh, enlisted in the armed forces of Ukraine. Uh, so as we mentioned before, Artem Chupai, Artem Chekh, they are both in the military. Artem Chekh was even in Bakhmut for five days. And as he wrote on Facebook, those were five days where he wasn't sure he was going to make it. Oleg Sintsov, uh, the filmmaker and writer who was famously uh, imprisoned in Russia for five years under false pretenses. They said he was uh, a terrorist for opposing the occupation of Crimea, where he is from. He, he, he said, leading up to the invasion, if it happens, I will join the army, I will defend Ukraine. And he did exactly that. He's uh, fighting in Zaporizhia right now, I think, Zaporizhia Oblast. And uh, there's uh, Yarina Chornos. She's a famous uh, poet, uh, one of the uh, few female writers who are in the military. And she was actually in the military before February 24th. Uh, She was the first woman to join her battalion, I believe. Now she's like she was a volunteer with Hospitalier and now she's in the Ukrainian Marines. She's just incredible poets, just so strong willed and so uh, like has such a commanding presence uh, in her perverse. And uh, I'm just really inspired by all of these, not just writers, not just singers, uh, filmmakers, uh, dancers, all people from all parts of the cultural sphere have gone to the front and have uh, also died. And this is, uh, I, I don't want to say it's like executed renaissance, God forbid, but we really are faced with that situation today where we are losing the most talented artists of our time because they do not have the luxury of being able to create uh, art for people, but they have to fight for their country's right to exist. Uh, and it's just as as difficult as it is to process, it's also just incredibly inspiring that they put their lives on hold. A lot of Ukrainian writers are also actively volunteering. Festivals are still happening in Ukraine. The first festival happened last September in Chernivtsi, so I'm very proud to, to say that. Uh, Meridian Chernivitz Poetry Festival happens every year, and they just decided, let's do it. Uh, but we had the, the book festival in Lviv a few weeks later. Uh, Serhii Zhidan held like kind of a makeshift literary festival in a bunker in in Kharkiv when it was still quite dangerous there. And uh, this year, Book Arsenal got to happen in Kyiv. And uh, famously, Volodymyr Zelensky, our president, was there. And a lot of Ukrainian writers uh, were very proud when they saw that he purchased their books. Uh, <laughs> as you can say, the president owns a copy of my book. Yeah. And uh, I, I unfortunately couldn't make it to Kiev during that time. But as I heard, it was also quite cathartic and quite wonderful uh, because the fact that these things still get to happen is a form of resistance. When Russia is trying to destroy uh, Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian cultural events happen, that is really, really important. We're now going to be answering some questions that we got from our community members. The Go Independent has finally launched its very own membership system. So it's now really easy to support us. You can just go to our website at goindependent.com slash membership and donate to us. There is an option for a one-time donation or for a subscription to become a community member for as little as $5 a month. All our members get really cool, interesting perks 
including exclusive access to events like discussions with editors and journalists. Uh, you also get access to a Discord channel uh, with the newsroom where you can talk among the community and also interact with us. We try to be as interactive as possible. And also one of the perks is that you get to send questions before every single episode of the podcast every week. And we try to respond as much as we can. So on to the questions now. Um, the first question was, what steps can Ukraine take to educate the world's population? I have seen the openings of very active and vocal Ukrainian cultural centers, both in Canada and the U.S. But what about other countries where disinformation and propagandists spread false narratives, such as Africa and South America? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, Pen Ukraine has been actively engaged in trying to... Uh, foster these connections. I know that they've had working meetings with their uh, colleagues in Latin America uh, and that they are trying to uh, to build these relationships. And writers from Latin American countries are very active in and in their desire to want to support Ukraine. Uh, it was actually, uh, I have to mention again, Victoria Melina, when she was in Kramatorsk, she was with three, uh, three uh, journalists, uh, writer and journalist, and I think a politician, so delegation from Colombia. Uh, who was with her in Kramatorsk. Mm -hmm. And uh, people like writers like her were really interested in uh, engaging with their colleagues from other countries. A lot of organizations like universities, uh, cultural centers are really interested in inviting Ukrainian writers to symposiums, to festivals. And these are opportunities where they can meet people from other countries and try to build these connections. And this is what Ukrainian writers are doing, as I've heard. And uh, of course, translation is a really important role, uh, right. has a really important role to play here. Uh, so Victoria's novel, uh, one of Victoria's novels was actually translated into Spanish recently before she was killed in Kramatorsk. So I believe that uh, this work has uh, not only been ongoing, but that it will continue and that uh, the literary communities of the world will uh, do everything they can to help support Ukrainian writers. Because as we, again, how many times we will say it, but it's worth repeating. Culture is a powerful tool and it's being used to, to you know, build, uh, to build understanding and compassion for Ukraine's cause. Yeah, I agree with you. I think culture and, and art are amazing ways to build these political connections too. And uh, Ukraine has uh, an amazing institution, also the Ukrainian Institute, which yes. is basically it, it's a government body that deals with cultural diplomacy. And as far as I understand, that's a very unique government body and not a lot of countries in the world even have something like that because Ukraine, I think, is one of the first countries to realize just how important cultural diplomacy can be. Um, especially in this kind of post-colonial uh, context like here in Ukraine. Absolutely. Another question that we got is interesting, but a bit difficult. So the uh, member is saying that someone once said that those who consider Russia the eastmost reach of European culture are wrong because, in fact, Russia is the westernmost reach of Asian culture. Clearly, Putin's current cultural manipulation is looking eastward. That leaves us to wonder if, in fact, Ukraine is the true eastmost reach of European culture. If this is so, then the depth of Russian nationalistic resentment and even hatred of Ukraine has very deep roots. Um, so the question is, without running the dangerous oversimplification, is it possible that there is some underlying truth here in this statement? What do you think? Uh, I would advise against framing 
Ukraine's struggle as a defense of European values, first and foremost. Mm, interesting. Why? Uh, I mean, this is what isolates people in the global south. Uh, to say that we are defending Europe. I mean, this is this is the reason that we should actually be closest with these countries that are victims of colonialism. And then to say like we are defending Europe, I mean, there, there's a reason why they don't, uh, that there are a lot of people are skeptical and why Russia is using that skepticism mm. uh, to further its propaganda in these yeah. regions. And I also, um, I, I don't know how I feel about the framing that uh, Russia represents Asian values because, um, it's, it's a bit, uh, I, I don't know. It's a little problematic. And, uh, I, I also want to take this point to say, like, we have a lot of support from Japan. I think that Japan is trying to right some historical wrongs. And I know of, uh, many people in the Korean literary scene who are supportive of Ukraine, actually, because, uh, of their past historical issues with, uh, with Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. they kind of see some, uh, commonality with Ukraine, uh, fighting against mm -hmm. Russia. I think this value of democracy should not have a regional uh, in inclination. It should be a, a global fight. And yeah, um, totally. when it comes to, to Russia looking at Ukraine in from some form of envy, uh, as we said before uh, in the previous questions, uh, Russia has tried to steal Ukrainian culture. They have tried also to steal Belarusian culture, uh, and a lot of other cultures, uh, of countries that it has attempted to, to, um, control and destroy. So, uh, yeah, Russia does look at Ukraine as some form of envy, I think. Uh, especially, I mean, this is a whole different podcast, but to go into the history of Kievan Rus as well. Uh, uh -huh. they want to say they're the, the birthplace of Slavic culture. Thank you, Gabe. This is actually a great time to promote Ukraine's True History Project. It's our amazing multimedia project where we publish stories and also videos, explainers on YouTube. Um, and we dig into Ukraine's history and how Russia has tried to distort it and manipulate it. And we basically debunk um, many myths like those of the Kievan Rus and Russia's connection to it and Russia's claims to it. Uh, so be sure to check out Ukraine's true history here on YouTube and also on our website as stories. But Kate, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I just wanted to take this moment to point out that uh, we're going to have more uh, book reviews on the Kiev Independent soon. And uh, we're going to do our best to enlighten our readers to uh, Ukrainian cultural uh, figures that are already translated into English. So if you are curious after listening to this podcast, don't worry, we have a lot more content coming your way. It was very interesting to listen to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Also this week, at least four people were killed and more than 30 were injured as a result of a Russian strike on the city of Lviv in western Ukraine on July 6th. Russia targeted civilian infrastructure, including apartment buildings, with several caliber missiles. The Ukrainian military and government continued warning against a possible Russian provocation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe and is currently under Russian control. Ukraine's intelligence reported that more explosives have been placed at the plant, in addition to similar reports from last summer. And Ukraine's military said that its counteroffensive is going according to plan, reporting two kilometers in advances in the direction of Berdyansk. 
You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please go to kubeindependent.com slash membership to support us and become a part of our community and follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.